Hello, welcome to episode 98 of the Going Upstairs podcast from Opening Up Cricket. We're building on the previous episode, which focused on supportive team environments, with another look at it, this time from outside of cricket and that of football. So joining me in this episode, John Northcroft, who on one hand is an Opening Up Cricket trustee, but on the other hand, is the football writer at the Sunday Times. So what John's looking at here with me is how at the very top level of football, well-being and the team environment is looked at and how the most successful managers have that as a big part of what they do. We've got some great examples from Southgate to Arteta to Klopp to Guardiola. I really enjoyed this. Hope you do too. We're going again from a different perspective on the topic of supportive team environments or whatever words we'd use to talk about simply those in a group looking out for the people that are around them. And this time we're going to go out of cricket, which is always pleasant, and think of it from a football perspective because John Northcross with me, uh, two hats that he wears, although wearing neither of them currently in a literal sense, uh, he is one of the Open Up Cricket team, one of our trustees, but for a, in his day job, is a football writer at the Sunday Times. So it's this thing, John, that we've actually spoken about fairly recently. How much can a manager, if we start with their influence, the players in terms of how they are, how they they can maintain their well-being, and then how much is really just on getting the performances out of them on the pitch because the stakes are so high. Well, I think the first observation I make is the two go hand in hand, and the best managers realise that. Um, and what's fascinated me looking at the top modern guys like Pep Guardiola or Jurgen Klopp is. Yes, they may have um, different tactical ideas or, you know, a younger generation would imagine more advanced tactical ideas. As a old bloke, I'd say different tactical ideas to the guys of the past, the 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 Fergies and the, the, the Kenny Dalgleishes or whatever. But they have a very scientific way of approaching tactics and, and fitness and all that kind of stuff. But they've got, there's a common thread, which is, their the attention they pay to man management, which is what I think the traditional brilliant managers of the past were 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 best at, which was that idea of accruing talent and motivating it the right way and letting it play. And I would say that um, if you study what 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 the what the the, the Guardiola's and the and the Klops do, um, there's a lot of attention paid to. Um, culture to team building to team environment and creating a sense of belonging I think is is a key thing more important than ever perhaps in football where football's a business there's a feeling of it being very transactional at the top level very ruthless and cynical um, if you watch the for example the Arsenal documentary on Amazon you'll see a young manager you see Arteta trying his very best all the time to instill a sense of belonging and culture and in a dressing room openness and the idea of sharing. So Arteta's team talks, there's one in that 
documentary, he starts bringing in an anecdote. It's a bit weird, but about how he met his missus or, or his future missus on a night out and this, that, and the next thing. But but what he's trying to do is perhaps in a slightly conscious way, which I think maybe the older generation did organically, is create for players the sense of the dressing room being a safe space where they share, where uh, there's a personal buy-in, a sense of belonging in that team environment. And I think when it comes to um, looking after players and when it comes to um, looking at the individual or treating players as individuals uh, and not just as sort of, you know, pieces of meat that you buy for 60 million and put on a football pitch, the best, even in the modern game, are, are paying a lot of attention to doing that and, and realise that performance and that well-being that I'm talking about goes hand in hand. So they they see it as a part of their role that from the, from the sounds of this that in this day and age the managers are are, are making a conscious effort to yeah. to look for whereas we yeah we can go back to all the storied examples of managers who would say do it and it and not have done it intentionally. It was just part of how they managed to organise it. Is that the difference that we I would, see? I would I would say so, Mark. I'd say if you think about the the, the generation shift that we've seen, maybe in the last twenty thirty years, um, there's a lot there's a lot to unpack. But I think the, I think an old an an older time, you create uh, belonging, buy in, team spirit, whatever quite organically naturally you send the guys out on 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 the lash together to be honest that you know it's, it wasn't wasn't any more complicated than that half the time and you'd have strong dressing room characters who if you think back to the liverpool days this this you know the, some of the strongest characters were the best players like your soonesses and so on who would who perhaps man it or, or the man united players brian robson would they'd be the social conveners as well as the, the the captains on the pitch. So a manager could allow the players organically to form those bonds. And then the other thing that the manager had was that sense of, of hierarchy that was probably instilled in a previous generation where uh, there was an acceptance of the manager having authority and being able to, um, like a school teacher or, or a parent, wield that authority we're talking about a different generation now where that that idea of elders having authority has disappeared a little bit where maybe it's it's a good thing we're in a more egalitarian culture where everyone's an individual and um and and people are more maybe younger people are more encouraged to question why they're being told to do things rather than just doing them because they're being told to do things but that presents an issue for a football manager um, knowing that they can't just say do that, run around the pitch, a, a young player will want to know why. Why am I doing this? And that's where, and and then doesn't have the um, the old fashioned way of just sending the the lads on a on a on a bender. That doesn't work. You you've got to be standards of fitness are, are, are too great now for for that, those old lifestyles to be lived. So I think that's why there's a more conscious effort uh, to try and manufacture in a way those bonds um and and have a scenario where players aren't doing things because they're being told to do things they're being they're doing things because they want to do things because they buy into the idea of why they're doing things 
and they see a personal benefit in also what benefits the group. I think that's what 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 as I say, managers and and the maybe psychologists they work with are, are striving very very hard to to create in the modern era. Now, have we always trying to take examples from professional sport to use in recreational sport and some things just don't quite work because of the fact that people are being paid to do it and mm. even i appreciate in the, the the modern day it's harder to compel people to do things but you still have an element of that authority if you're guardiola klopp uh, mark robbins whoever it would be <laughs> uh, if we're thinking about these the, the the players I'm interested in this contrast between football and cricket. When we were speaking with Ethan last time, he's he talked about how he's really fortunate to have four or five people that he grew up with who he plays now at Middlesex with, and they spend a great deal of time together. Whether it be four day cricket, one day cricket, tra- a lot of travel, um, but then spend time with each other outside of the sport, and that helps him feel like he's got like a network of support. What's the sort of the the time balance with with footballers? Because I appreciate if you're a Man City involved in all these competitions towards the end, you you, you play a lot of football, and you if you're not on the starting eleven, you'll still travel. Mm. But we always hear about how you know players might knock off from their training halfway through the day and then have these empty periods of time. Is that something that a manager or a leader within the the environment will will look to try and influence and try and say it's not quite why don't you go and hang out with him but mm. trying to get those bonds which might persist a little bit outside of the training ground and the dressing room yeah that that that's an interesting one on the on the free time because there's actually demands on a lot of demands on elite footballers now in free time from sports science so they will have recovery programs after training sessions quite well mapped out they'll um you know they'll be they'll have prescribed rest they might even have prescribed sleep a lot of football clubs have sleep specialists that work with them now um they'll have analysis to do you know it's become i don't think that you know, everything's being monitored is what i'm saying if they have a late night the the, the, the the medics will know about it if they haven't done their recovery they'll look at the the physical data, the heartbeat data, what, what were you doing then? Why were you walking at this point? Do you know what I mean? That everything, these guys are like machines now in, in the sense of how their bodies are, are monitored. So actually, I don't think there's, there's, there's the same sort of scope to say to players, you know, the, what the old-fashioned thing was, oh, we're going to go go-karting or whatever. And then the old old-fashioned thing was going to the pub. But I don't think that happens anymore so much. So I think the challenge then becomes... How to create the bonds in this in in shorter spaces of time? Um, Man City, for example, it's quite interesting, but they 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 do have I think more time off. I think I'd be right in saying than some clubs. I think and Guardiola builds in days off a bit more than maybe some other elite managers do, which I think is recognition of how much they how much they have to be on it when they're on it. Um, and you can see you see you, you can do a google search you can see the man city lads actually do socialize quite a bit together um uh in 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 sort of yeah prescribed ways and, and they have got genuine friendships it's it's it, it, it there's just we're talking about different times um 
but you made the point this this kind of less in common with the elite um and maybe the club stuff that that you and I might 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 have played um but I think the bonds are still there you know that the, the elite elite footballers are still people who essentially love the game enjoy dressing room environments they crave the same things I think is what I'm saying that that you or I would crave from our five-a-side games or whatever, um, and they, the the it, it, the clubs, the managers who try and erase all fun from it and and all sense of of, of bonds and buy-in, it doesn't work for them. Certainly not in in English culture, um, and I think you can you can see the examples like the Contes or whatever. They it works a finite time. Even now in this day and age, players get get fed up of things being too, um, yeah, too funless, shall we say, and too without. Yeah, it, it, I guess it all comes back to the idea of playing for something a little bit more than just the business aspect, and being something more than just the machine. Being seen as a as a person uh, and an individual, and there's probably different ways of creating that, but. To go back to what I said, the, the the best managers and team environments are still doing that in a different way. Hmm. And I think when you mention that common purpose, which is you'd hope in any team, whether it's a, a, a workplace based in an office or Manchester City or, or Liverpool, Coventry City, whoever you might think of, that common purpose is something which we can never underestimate in terms of bringing people together and the connection. And this is the one from the ways to well-being that just like we, the sport is that 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 thing for us to be able to use. I don't. I, I'm just guessing then from what you, you're saying that that these people, of course, are human beings just like the rest of us, have a set of things that are quite difficult to understand because of the income and the the, the popularity that they that they they have. But they're still looking to connect with someone other than just themselves. It's not just about their individual performance. It's that wider collective. 100%. 100%. I did a feature earlier in the year about um, Ange Postacoglu. And something that really stuck out for me was that I, I spoke to a friend of mine who'd, who'd worked with Ange in the Australia national team setup. And he used the word storyteller to describe Ange. He said he's a storyteller. And um, I thought it was a really interesting way of describing a, a coach, a football manager. But when you dig into it, part of Postacoglu's kind of genius is he he's brilliant at getting his players and staff together and telling them what their purpose is, telling them what it means, why they're all here. And he's great at using his own background, you know, he arrived in um, Australia at the age of five on a boat from Greece with 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 his parents. None, nobody spoke a word of of English um, in the family, and they had a really tough sort of early. Well, I think it's, I think it's, it was tough for the family the whole the whole way through. But but he had a tough childhood as his family struggled to make a new life in a new place, and he uses that personal story to say to his players. You know, be fearless. Um, you can try something different and and end up su successful. This is who you are. This is why we're doing it. He talks a lot about our football 
you know, giving them the idea that they have a, a particular way of playing football and ownership over that and telling them the story about why that's why that's in, important to them. Gareth Southgate, if you look at his coaching career with England, it was a kind of under 21 level. He had two phases, really. His initial phase as an England under 21 manager wasn't going very well. He flopped at one of the of, of the big tournaments and, and had kind of reached a point where it looked like he might be let go from, from the FA. And his kind of light bulb moment, and he worked with um, a psychologist called Johnny Zimmer on this, but his light, light bulb moment was understanding that he needed to be more vulnerable and open and he needed to tell players about his experience as an England player um, and particularly the penalty miss in Euro 96 and the, 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 the impact that had on him. And it started to change for him with, with the players once he started sharing that story and, and giving them a sense of a narrative about playing for England, about casting off the pressures of the past. And it's okay to make mistakes. Look at me. I made the biggest mistake of all. I, I missed a penalty at Wembley in a home championship. So I think that's I think that's the key to it. It's it's um it's giving players a sense of um that that they're doing something that's part of a that's part of a story, that's part of a journey that means something to them, but also the people alongside them in the dressing room are there for the same purpose. And even the leader, even the leaders on the same journey. Um and 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 that's 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 what it's about. That's what the that's what the best sort of sports cultures are about in in, in football certainly mm. I think there's, there's two things just uh, to, to bring us towards the end that I think uh, I've come out of that that I'd like to look at a little bit more one is we we can often talk about when it's that the idea of well-being in professional sport is really often phrased in terms of the identity of the the athlete and are they for example a footballer or are they John who's a father, a brother, etc. Now it be it's nice to be able to think of being able to separate the two completely and have almost uh, the compartments of your life all divided up. And I remember Tony Adams in one of his books saying he found a great deal of uh, of support in a, 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 some kind of system that he'd he'd been exposed to, where you 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 look at having nine compartments in your life, and you invest in each of them, whether that be friends, family, work, mm-hmm. spirituality, anything else, so that if something's not going well in one area, simply put, yeah, you can look at another area, and you it's not all based on that. But of course, for someone who's been wanting to be a professional footballer since they were probably capable of speaking and then they made this dream, they probably, I would imagine, do see themselves as, yeah, I'm a footballer and it is incredibly important, therefore, to be part of something where it's about you you as the as the footballer, what the legacy is or what, what you're doing. So linked to that, that conception of who the individuals are sounds brilliant when you manage to get someone like yeah your usual people that we'd mention being able to foster that but what what's that like i suppose what's your take on when people feel like maybe a bit disconnected from that so the team environment's great if you're getting enough minutes on the pitch 
mm. you moving up the table. But when those things aren't quite working and there's there's bits where people might feel left out, Where's the manager there? Where's the other players? Because they're, of course, all competing for the same time on the grass. Is there that issue, like we find in more kinds of walks of life, where people are, whether it's deliberate or not, left out of that and are not supported? It's a long way around this, but I think what do we what do we see as being like the the, the pitfalls that can be avoided? Yeah, look, I think there's 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 there are are still huge issues within the game on that score um, and there's probably um, still a crass public understanding of, of let's see what mental health might mean to an elite footballer and you, you, you think about the the conjecture around Jaden Sancho when um, he needed a sort of a break really for his own well-being at, at Manchester United um, uh, and came about because I guess it's a clash between him and his um his kind of personality and 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 style and he's he's it's not a secret he's notoriously poor at things like timekeeping and so on with a hard line disciplinarian manager and Ten Hag tried initially the whole old-fashioned right you're out you know go and go and, go and train with the kids sort of thing um but didn't work and they ended up having a a break and come back and then it still hasn't really worked that clash between the the two styles and um i think there's this huge mental health issues for players who um at the end of their careers you know that kind of idea of identity foreclosure where they stop being the footballer um and and they just become um for the first time in their lives they have to become somebody else and they're massive massive um strides that 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 not just the pfa but all elements of the game needs to to take to try and take care of people and and it doesn't do very well it's a kind of hidden shame of, of football i would say um and it may and it and and, and you've got to think about the way football's structured that it is so professionalized now that if you join an academy you're likely to join around about the age of seven or eight. And you're likely to start training from that point onwards, four or five nights a week, for, well, three or four nights a week, then play at the weekend. So five or six days out of your week at the age of eight will be taken up by your Premier League football club, which means you get taken out of school, essentially. You, you, you don't have the same life that your schoolmates have from that very, very early age. You're in the system. And, I, you know, there's been academy suicides. There's been all sorts of issues with um, uh, gambling addictions, um, issues of, of 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 academy kids being discarded that are a real issue. So I find it, you know, I'm not sure how much I, we, I've talked about the elite environments at first team level and how some of the good examples work, but the game as a whole, I'm not sure if it is working particularly well and just to, it's been a very long way around to get back to what you asked which was about i think players let's say being left out of teams and being injured even among the best coaches i'm probably not going to name names i hear a pretty bad practice where some still take an old-fashioned approach that uh if someone's an injured if someone's injured ignore them you know that i think that that that, that used to be an idea that that's how you treat an injured player because basically 
that'd be the way to encourage them to get fit again. Just shut, ignore them, make them have to work to get back into the dressing room. I mean, that that's that's you're fraught with that's fraught with problems, I think, for the the individual who's injured and lonely and, and, and trying to battle the way back. But that's that's an old fashioned way of football thinking. So, you know, as I said, I've talked about good practice, but there's a lot of there's a, there's a long way to go, I think, for for the game to truly look after the individuals. Um and not just not just it may maybe what, what I've been saying is the very best are getting looked after when they're performing in the very best teams, but that's a different thing to whether the game itself is looking after its individuals in a more global way. Yeah. And and I think that's always the thing, isn't it? Like there can be these great examples set in so many different aspects. Like the same teams come up as your examples, whether it's football, you you quote the Manchester City, Barcelona, Real Madrid, whoever it be, go over to rugby, it's always the All Blacks. And they tend to, it seems to be, you'll see the quality of attention to detail across so many different things. And well-being is is increasingly a part of that. It's then, like we said earlier, someone who's playing for their grassroots club in whatever sport, it's very abstract to talk about what the New Zealand All Blacks do in their team meetings because a team meeting at your local cricket club or football club might be something that's you know fairly rushed in the bar uh, just to prepare for the season. And it's there's there's so many things to do. You're perhaps not going to prioritise saying to them, "Hey, look, by the way, we're a group who want to look out for each other." But it's just those little nudges. And I'll finish with something I remember reading. I know we probably every time we speak end up coming back to Alex Ferguson and right. like the exact. Who you're going to say, No Whelan? Was that he said? Um. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Um, the one which really came out for me in in fact peter schmeichel's book which you um which, which you wrote with him was i was like anything when it comes to that era of manchester united just like like anyone so fascinated by how they managed to sustain that period of success with players coming in and out but ferguson being the constant and just something struck me about what schmeichel said about ferguson's management was that he did something which would appear to be upside down in most walks of life that we're always told to treat people the same and say oh actually you know you've got to treat john just like you treat chris and so on it makes sense but schmeichel's point in the book was there was a time where he was having uh, some struggles and he said the great thing about ferguson was he treated people differently because of course they are different and having that confidence i suppose to say that'll work for peter but for Roy or David or whoever I might do something else that really got me thinking about any environment or group that I'm in to say you do need to probably start with realizing everyone's going to have that different way of doing things yeah he was an absolute genius at being able to create a kind of overarching culture which everyone had to adhere to you know a set of group rules but within that as Peter wrote about in his book treating every 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 player was an individual and he invested in his knowledge of 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 that person as an individual so he he famously and he i, I think he ben, Fergie benefited from having a kind of almost photographic memory but he famously knew would know like every detail about someone 
even even a young player just come into a, a team so we'd know their their mum's name their dad's name their brothers or their sisters even their grandparents and we'd would surprise them by asking you know asking after how's your granddad getting on sort of thing right from a, the moment they came into the team he would make it his business to know everything about them he famously had sort of networks around manchester where he would he would get intel about them where do they live who do they hang around with where do they go out blah 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 um, yes, there's a controlling element to that, but also um, an attempt to understand them as a person. Peter told the story of um, the first time he met Fergie was, I think, 18 months before he actually signed. And it was when he'd, he'd, he'd got onto United's radar at that point. He was a, um, he was a goalkeeper at Bromby in, 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 in the Danish league. And he was, dry, he, he was on the way home from training one day and he got a call from his... Um, wasn't really an agent. It was it was it was a kind of rep that helped him with a few things at that point. But this guy said, "Oh, you better come to my house." Um, and Peter said, "Why?" And he said, "Well, you'll 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 see when you get there." And he arrived at the house, and there was there was Alex Ferguson in the front room, and he'd flown in just to see him. Shook his hand, Peter. I'm watching you. You're doing really well. Keep up the good work. Right, I better go to the airport. He's there for about three minutes, and he'd flown to Denmark just to shake Peter's hand and put the idea in his head that he might play from one day. Right, I'll be watching you keep it up. And, and off he went back to Manchester. And that kind of set a tone. And I think the perhaps the moment you're thinking about in, the, in, in Peter's career was, if you fast forward all the way to the 1998-99 season, the famous treble winning season, Peter came into that exhausted, absolutely rinsed, physically and mentally. He was, he was getting older at that point, into his mid-30s. Um, he had played constant, non-stop football um, from sort of 90, well, throughout the 90s, really, but but a particularly brutal cycle from Euro 96 through to a big two seasons with United. Then went to the the World Cup with with Denmark and was just just absolutely shattered. Hadn't, hadn't had a break. Um came into the season and, and at the start of that season started to feel um, just fatigue, mental and physical fatigue and um, tried to do the old-fashioned thing which was to play on and and and, and, and cover up his, his issues. Um, had a particularly bad game at Sheffield United. I think he said to me he, he, he felt kind of, he had the sensation of being on the pitch but not, not feeling fully there. Letting a goal where he was kind of you know, almost it, it, it was almost an out of body experience watching it go in, and he knew at that point he needed to tell Fergie about it, and and um, and he said when he went to to see Fergie, he was he was like, okay, all right, um, he got his calendar out. First week in January, right, we've got an FA Cup tie. You can have a week's holiday then. Go and sort yourself out, and and you know. That from that 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 was a moment that changed everything for Peter. He said the burden was lifted, knowing that there was a break coming up, knowing that he'd been understood. Took his break, came back, and played. Um, you know the part he played in in, in winning the treble, um, and that was just a little example of 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 how Fergie would do things. Um, he would tailor certain things to the individual, and 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 despite all the things he had to do as a manager, would would take time to to try and manage people in that individual way and it's quite different to the usual portrayal of 
Alex Ferguson, the hairdryer. The hairdryer didn't come out very often. Um, he was much more the individual man manager than any anything else. Hmm. I think that is a great place to to wrap it up because those kind of examples from Ferguson, we've had Arteta, Postacoglu, um, Southgate. They're all things that we in our own settings can do. And it always comes back to just perhaps having that willingness and intent to be someone that that cares and wants the environment that we're in to be the the best possible. And it's always going to be a concern of a, a leader to do that. But everyone else has their their role to to play as well. And I think what's really striking is that those methods that are more that are proactive, that are seeking to do something to to build that identity for the team or for Ange to to tell that story to to push them towards something. It's what well-being should be about. That we're looking forward and thinking, what can we do to positively impact it, rather than just saying, "So and so has had this really big decline, which we probably could have seen, but we were looking elsewhere, and now we're picking up the pieces." And that's the mental health discussion, as it's been for for far too long. So I think all those things that you've mentioned are just great things that can come across all all walks of life, and also make us think about like how we view the professional game and maybe not be as cynical when we do see players who are not at their best or who do have time off because I don't know about you I just can't imagine working under that much scrutiny or pressure no exactly uh, I, I, I think um, to deal with the scrutiny and pressure they they have to deal with now requires such an enormous amount of resilience and and mental energy that unless there are um Unless there are sort of, yeah, unless there's meaning to it, and unless there is someone offering a safety valve um, and offering the idea that actually sometimes you might find this difficult and it's okay and and you know we'll take care of you if 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 you do that. I I, I don't think players can function without that. And, and and it's and that's always been true. I think to go back to what we said, that's always been true in sport, but it's become ever more um, maybe maybe manufactured. But but maybe that's a good thing. You know, it it, it there are, there is a greater sort of consciousness of it. And the final thing that sort of jumps into my mind again, going back to the um, I mentioned Guardiola. If you go back to the documentary, the the City documentary, one of the key moments for me was um, when David David Silva is has got a leave of absence because his his son was was born with serious medical problems, and he took a few months off, I think, to look after um, to attend to that. And they um, they go out, Guardiola. They make T-shirts for for Silva. And and Guardiola does this big team talk about this is why we're doing it. You know, if we score today, it's for him and it's about him. And it's a really powerful scene, even in this kind of like marketing documentary, um, with this kind of setup scene where you know you know that the 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 the, the filmmakers are thinking this is great, this is a bit of a money shot, this scene. But even then watching it, you can't help be moved by it. And what Guardiola is saying to the players, he's not just saying there's a reason that we're doing this and this 
today's reason is David Silver, but there's this bigger reason, which is, you know, we're a family here. He's also saying to them, if you have problems, we would, we would do this for you. This is what we're doing for him, but we would do this for you too. And I, I think that's, um, that's a really, really powerful way to manage. Absolutely. Great one to, to finish there, John. Thank you for your time. Always a pleasure to chat about anything, but this, I think, is such a, you know, brilliant subject to get stuck into. Um, and I hope people listening to it, it, it gives them some food for thought. So thanks for your time. See you again Whatever. soon. See you, mate.